And uh, yeah, just really, really pumped to have you all here. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I'm going to bring a word in a moment. But before we do that, Jem is going to read some scripture for us. Why don't you make Jem welcome? What a champion. Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. One day, an expert in religious law stood to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does Moses say? How do you read it? The, uh, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And love the Lord as your neighbour. Uh, sorry, <laughs> love your neighbour as yourself. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was travelling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay, I'll pay the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbour to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, great passage. So uh, we are in the midst of this series called Ascending Capacity. And uh, Ascending Capacity is all about mission, right? Mission is a, is a great Christian word, uh, easily misunderstood, as is today's parable. So tonight's teaching passage, as Jem read, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And a lot of uh, theologians and lecturers sort of considered that maybe this is the most misunderstood parable in all of Scripture. And that's saying something, considering how badly Scripture gets misunderstood. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is right up there. And we'll get into why in just a minute. But before we do that, sending capacity is built around the idea of what does it actually mean for us to live on mission. It comes from this quote from the author and pastor Rick Warren, who says that a church's health is not defined by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. And what he means by this is if we fill up this room with 150 people and we have to go to a second service and third service, that's all well and good. But unless the mission of God takes root in our hearts and sends us out into the world, prompted and inspired by the Holy Spirit to do the works of God, then we kind of miss the mark. And so we're exploring this idea and we're using the rubric from a scripture in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is in the New Testament, which uh, helps us understand that Jesus told his disciples to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you can kind of use these to represent different areas. Last week, I talked about Jerusalem. You can find that on the podcast. Shout out to Jacob, who does a great job getting our podcast sorted. What a guy. And, um, and you'll find that uh, already up on uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, Podcast Republic and all, all the good places. Uh, this week, I'm talking about Samaria. What does it mean to be on mission to Samaria? Now, 
I'll, I'll unpack that in a second. I want to go through in about a minute the parable of the, parable of the Good Samaritan and just explain anything that might be slightly confusing. So, Keith, if we just whip up the passage behind us again, can we just go back to that first one? Okay. Expert in the law, you can just call that a lawyer, all right? I'll be using the word lawyer, but effectively that was someone who was an expert in Jewish law. So they asked Jesus a question, uh, keeping on going, Keith, what is written in the law? Jesus asked him, asked him a question back. Yep, keep going. You're going, love the Lord your God, right? He gives him the great commandment. This is a really, really good answer. Keep going. And then Jesus tells him this story because Jesus rarely gives people a straight answer. He likes people to find out the answer for themselves. And so Jesus gives him this answer and it's confusing. It's about this guy who gets injured and uh, two people potentially come to help and then they cross the other side. And what's so stunning about this is these are people who are involved in the Jewish power structure. They are both involved in the temple. They, one of them is uh, sort of a worship leader and one is kind of a worship assistant and not like musically, but in all of worship in the temple. And so then along comes this Samaritan, this good Samaritan. And whether, if this is your first time in church or not, you've probably heard the phrase good Samaritan because it just lives in the popular lexicon, right? It basically just means someone who does something nice. Would, would that be fair? That's kind of how we understand it. Like, oh, a good Samaritan just bought my coffee today. It's like, okay, I think that's a fair jump from the original text, but still. And so this good Samaritan comes along, does something well, and the idea is that we are meant to understand what it means to be kind. However, I want us to take this phrase, parable of the good Samaritan, and just put it out of our minds tonight. And I want you to think of it as the parable of the three questions. The parable of the three questions. Because like a lot of things in Western culture, because Christianity has influenced it so strongly, sometimes the language seeps in and we actually miss what the original intent that Jesus was trying to say is. So a classic example is when we think of God, God the Father, a lot of people are like, yeah, old guy, big white beard, lives in the clouds. Like, None of that is correct. <laughs> None of it's true. So this is, this is the sort of thing that sometimes media and culture and our own lives, we get caught up in this picture. So I want you to take away your normal picture of the Good Samaritan and we're going to unpack it a bit more. What we're using Samaria for, the region of Samaria, is to help us understand what it means to do ministry and to live out the mission of God to those who are like us, but just a little bit different. Those who are close enough to us that we are in constant proximity to us, but are different enough that they make us feel uncomfortable. So let me give you a real life example. I frequent coffee shops quite a lot right? Like, no surprises if you know me. And there's a particular coffee shop I go to a lot uh, where you sit outside, it's in the city, and frequently you get homeless guys coming up uh, and asking for money. And you know, it's fine. It's usually the same people. And you get, if you're there often enough as I am, you get a bit of a sense of like, okay, you know, am I being taken for a ride or not? One day I was sitting there with my friend Dan, we we're having a coffee, and this guy rocks up and he's like, oh, you know, uh, do you have any money you can give me? And if you're anything like me, I'm not saying this is the right response, but if you're anything like me, part of you is like, I would rather buy you food than give you money, right? And so often that's my line. But as it happens, also, there's an easy inbuilt line now that happens to be true in that we just say, I don't have any cash because who carries cash? If we're under 50, we don't carry cash. Oh, sorry. I've only got a card. And that's when if the homeless guy really wants food, often they'll say, oh, could you... Could you come and buy me a meal? And in that case, you know, great. And that's what he did. He said, oh, do you reckon you could buy me a meal? I was like, yeah, sure, absolutely. What kind of person would I be if I couldn't offer you a meal? I was like, well, there's a few, like, burger joints, you know, 
Hungry Jacks, you know, fish and chips, whatever. What, what are you keen on? He's like, oh, yeah, there's a place I like. Uh, is it all right if we just, we just go over here and we go for a walk? I was like, sure. So my friend Dan and I, we'd finished our coffee. We got up, wandered after this guy, and he takes us over. And he takes us to, like, this really nice restaurant. And he walks in, and he's like, oh, I really like this place. I'm like, I bet, yeah, I'd like it too if I could afford it. <laughs> he's like, oh, can I order something up here? I'm like, well, if you do that, it's probably got to be a starter, bro. Like, I, I can't afford a main here. He's like, oh, so no steak? <laughs> wow, that's sassy. Isn't that sassy? Like, you can't afford a steak? No, I don't buy myself steaks, and I love steak, okay? So, no, money's too tight for steak. So... So he's like, oh, okay, oh, all right, I know another place. And he walks down to a Euros shop and he goes in and the uh, guy working the Euros shop greets him like as if he knows him. I'm like, okay, okay. And he, and he orders a Euros with a lot and I was like, okay. And he's like, hey, drink as well, right? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> Grab a drink. So he goes to the, the drink fridge, grabs a drink, brings it out. And my mate Dan is just looking at me like, who is this guy? Like, how much is he going to ask for one of your children? I'm like, mate, he'd have better luck with that, I reckon. But <laughs> no, well, it depends on the day. And so, in, anyway, as I'm paying for it, I look at the owner of the Euro shop and I'm like, uh, does this happen a lot? And he's like, oh, yeah, every day. I'm like, okay, I've been taken for a ride here. That's fine. But of course, the point is not whether I got taken for a ride or not. It's that here is a man who is hungry and he's being fed, right? So it doesn't actually matter whether he's, quote-unquote, taking advantage of me, does it? The point is, he's hungry and he's being fed. And in the Gospels, again and again, you hear Jesus cry to feed the poor, feed the widow and the orphan and the alien, the foreigner, as it's, as it's put in, that, in those terms. And so we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we ask ourselves, well, why is this so strange? When we get to this idea that Samaria is a place with people that are like us, but just a bit different, like, like a homeless guy, you know, is effectively, I don't know if you've heard the phrase there, but for the grace of God to go, oh, you know, it's a bit, bit patronising actually. But there's, there's a sense that we can look at somebody who's homeless and go, a couple of different decisions in our lives and maybe we're just switching positions, right? And it helps breed empathy and compassion. And the thing about the Samaritans is that they were actually part of the, the Hebrew faith. There was, uh, Israel was split up into two kingdoms at one point. Think of it like Korea, north and the south. And the north got taken off into slavery by Babylon. And later the south got taken off into slavery too. But what the Babylonians did was very clever. They repatriated this group of people back into the north. So they were still keeping the land and it was still... Israelite land, but they intermarried them with a bunch of Babylonians. So they moved a bunch of Babylonian people in with them so that they would intermarry and that the Hebrew religion would begin to die off. And it did. It actually did. So the Samaritans were kind of this uh, breed that were half Israelite and half Babylonians. And for the Israelite people, you've got to understand this, in their context, this represents sin. This represents sin right in front of them. It represents the unfaithfulness of all of Israel to God, but like right in their face. So I want you to imagine it as if the worst mistake of your past is just being carried around in a backpack on your back all the time. And people are like, hey, look at it. So the Israelites hated the Samaritans because it was a constant representation of their own failure to be in a close relationship with God. Does that make sense? This is why the inclusion of a Samaritan is such a bomb in Jesus' story. We know that the broader message of this story hits home. The obvious message of the story is compassion, 
right? And we know it hits home because the disciples in the first two centuries, you read from Christian authors and non-Christian historians that the disciples are known for the way they loved people, for their charity, for their grace, for their generosity. And so Jesus wants to tell us about this, but he wants to tell us more. So I'm going to take you through these three questions now, and they're going to help you understand the true heart of God for your life and also Jesus' desire for our sense of mission to Samaria. Is that good? All right. All three questions come from the text. And the first question is the obvious one. The first question you need to ask yourself in this text is, who is my neighbor? Everybody say neighbor. Okay. Who is my neighbor? And this is the question that the lawyer uses. And we think, okay, okay, fair question. Who is my neighbor? Because when we think of neighbors, we think of the people either side of us that we put up fences to avoid talking to, right? Those are our neighbors. But in Jesus' day, the message was far broader. And the reason this question kind of sucks is because the lawyer is somebody who was an expert in Hebrew law. What does that mean? All right, Old Testament a whole bunch of law and prophets and wisdom writings and histories. And somebody who was an expert in the Hebrew law would be expected to know the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament in the Bible. So not the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have known that off by heart. They would have been able to recite that in Hebrew. And if you don't know the lyrics to the second verse of Advanced Australia Fair, just think about how hard that would be. All right? Yeah, something, something, across the seas we come, whatever. Ah, Radiant Southern Cross, is that the second verse? Oh, man, we don't know. Everybody's silent. God bless Australia. And so this lawyer not only knew every part of the law back to front, he knew the nuances of it. And so the Hebrew word that Jesus uses, taken from the Old Testament, okay? So he's not, this isn't about translation. This is about the original context, right back, is the word that means neighbor. And about half the time that you read that in the Old Testament, it means neighbor. And then about another quarter of the time, it means somebody you've never met before. Somebody you have no idea who it is, like a stranger. And then about the other quarter of the time, it means like a close friend, or a husband, or a brother, and one time it's even translated as lover. So basically, this word neighbor could mean somebody who is very close to you and in the nearby proximity, or somebody who you've never met before, or somebody who is you are really intimate with, and that covers everybody, right? Like, you don't know them, or you do know them, or you're very close to them. Yeah, that's everyone. That's everybody. So when the man asks, who is my neighbor, he's being facetious. He knows the answer. But he's, forcing, he's trying to force Jesus into a corner. He's trying to trip Jesus up. Spoilers, that never goes well for the people who try and do that. So Jesus turns around and he goes, all right, here's this story. And the clear message that comes out of this story is about compassion, right? Compassion is a critical quality. Who is your neighbor? Jesus tells a story that at the end of it, radical compassion reigns. But it's, it's a little more complicated. We'll get into the complication in a minute. I want to take us into our own context for a minute. If the message is about compassion, and it's about compassion in a cross-cultural context, and it's about compassion with people that we are in close proximity to, but not always comfortable with, I want to suggest two groups of people that we as Encounter Church need to really pray about and seek God about how we minister to and love. And I want to suggest that those two groups of people are Indigenous Australians and asylum seekers. Those two in particular. There are many, many groups that need love, that need prayer, that need support, that are worth praying for and getting your hands dirty and getting involved in. 
and God might be prompting you even now about some of those groups. But here's why I believe these two groups are really important. It's got nothing to do with political or social issues. I don't know uh, how comfortable you are with language like first peoples or what you think about people coming in on boats. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is that when I meet Jesus face to face, I don't think he's going to ask me, how well did you protect Australia's borders? I don't think he's going to ask me, did you make sure Australia Day stayed on January the 26th? But I think he is going to ask me how I cared for those who are taken advantage of, who are uh, vulnerable in our community and broken. And if I'm going to stand with integrity before Jesus and say that I did what I could to support them, I need to find out a way to support Indigenous Australians and asylum seekers in particular. Because our asylum seekers are over there on Nauru and on Manus Island. They're under the stewardship and protection of our government, which means really us. We elect the officials. We want to, we want to get mad at them when they do something stupid. Well, let's get mad at them when they're doing something stupid. We've got to help these people. We've got to be involved in some way in advocating for them. Again, not a political statement about whether boats should come or not. It's a statement about compassion to people who are our responsibility. And when we look at Indigenous Australians, there is a rate of incarceration and death in custody and of adult mortality that is unacceptable and even unacceptable, which is the real word, of course. <laughs> but it is, it is totally unacceptable. I got excited and said unacceptable. But it is unacceptable, the adult mortality rate for Indigenous Australians. It is unacceptable, the rate of death in custody for Indigenous Australians. So what do I think we need to do about that? I want to encourage all of us in this church, right? to think about and pray about how you can befriend somebody who is Indigenous or who is an asylum seeker. I'm not saying you should go out, you know, like, you know, flipping Tinder with asylum seekers. I, I, what I'm saying is that as you, yeah, that was pretty weird. I'll, I'll own that. Uh, what I'm saying is as you pray and as you pray for asylum seekers and as you pray for Indigenous Australians, ask God to provide opportunities where you can meet them and befriend them. Because when you befriend somebody, you understand somebody. And I think a lot of our struggles in Australia over our policies and our understanding of asylum seekers and our relationships with Indigenous Australians come down to a lack of relationship, lack of friendship. And so I, that's my prayer for you, that you would seek the Lord with all your heart to ask yourself how you can befriend those. I'll land on Indigenous Australians just for a moment. Uh, I was talking about this with somebody recently, that for Encounter, we're not going to be a place where every single week we do an acknowledgement of country, because the central purpose of this as a church is to worship Jesus. And I think when you do that week after week, you can get skewed with that. That's just what my opinion. But we will do it on special occasions to show that we stand in solidarity with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, and that we are for them, not against them, and even not against them by omission. You know what I mean? Like when you say, oh, we haven't done it, but that doesn't mean we're against you. No, no, we are going to do an acknowledgement of country at times to acknowledge that we are with our Indigenous brothers and sisters, and they were here first, and we stand for them. And so this is just one of those times. So an acknowledgement of country right now, that today, as we gather here at Encounter, we give thanks for the Ghana people, that we acknowledge the commitment their ancestors made across the generations to nurturing this land, that together may we walk into the future, recognizing the sacred footsteps of Jesus that continue to lead us together to the promises of heaven. 
That's just an acknowledgement. And we're going to do those in some special occasions to continue to reinforce that we are for the first peoples of this land. If we know, friends, that Jesus wants us to be good neighbours, who is my neighbour? What kind of questions do we imagine he might ask us when he meets us face to face? I think that's what we need to consider. And I actually want to go a step further because Brad Jones, I remember a sermon that he preached once, the Rev, great friend of ours. And he, he said, he was talking about loving your enemies and praying for your enemies. And he reminded us that you need to pray for your enemies and love your neighbors. But the thing about when you pray for somebody is you begin to love them. And so your enemies become your neighbors. And that's always stuck with me. If you feel uncomfortable about asylum seekers or indigenous Australians, and it may just be because you haven't had much experience with them, that's okay. Pray for them and it will begin to change your heart, I promise. That's my challenge to you. How might Jesus be challenging us to show radical compassion by asking, who is my neighbor? But that is only the first question we ask ourselves. The second one is more important. More important than compassion, yes. And that is this. At the end of... Of this parable, Jesus asks, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? The first question is, who is my neighbor? The second question that Jesus throw back is, well, who proved it? Who proved to be a neighbor to this man? Because compassion, my friends, is the bare minimum. Compassion is signing a change.org petition and then going back on Facebook, right? Compassion is feeling the feels and not necessarily doing something about it. But Jesus is calling us to action. Now, I want to just... Turn left a little bit here, because when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you're anything like me and you're reading a great story, you get caught up in it. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you begin to kind of judge the characters in it, right? You begin to judge the Levite and the priest. Why do we judge them? Because they represent religion and power. They represent areas of our world where we believe people should be actively taking a part in making lives better. So we begin to judge the Levite and the priest. I want to take... Just unpopular opinion. I'm going to stand on a different corner for a minute. The Levite and the priest had really good reasons for not helping this person. Let me explain. The Levite and the priest in different forms were responsible for leading Israel in worship. Now that meant that they devoted their entire lives to being pure in the presence of God. To being unblemished, unblameable, ready there in the presence of God to lead the entire nation into worship. If they went near a dead body, and remember... From a distance, you don't know if it's dead or not. This person's probably not moving. He said he was left for dead. As far as we know, this person is dead. If they approach a dead body, not touch, approach, they can be quarantined away from the rest of Israel for a week or more. That means no income. That means no connection with their family. That means they're unable to serve God in worship in the temple. You can make an argument if you're the Levite or the priest that we didn't go over and touch this dead body because we wanted to stay pure for the Lord our God. Interesting. The problem with this is it's, 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 a, it's a teensy bit like, you know, Holocaust denial corner, like where you go, no, 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 you know, it's not quite that bad, but it's that corner where you're like, you're taking a bad corner on purpose for the sake of argument and then you get stuck there and you don't actually want to convince people to that side. The problem 
is that much like my encounter with the homeless guy at the coffee shop, the question was not, are you ritually pure? The question is, who showed compassion? Who proved to be a good neighbor? And the person who proved to be a good neighbor was the Samaritan. Let me throw another curveball at you. You can totally argue that Samaritan had less to lose, right? He didn't have a week that he was going to have to spend away from his family if he was caring for this person. There were no ritual purity laws that applied in the same way to the average Samaritan layperson. They weren't going to be judged for entering the temple because the Jews wouldn't let them into the temple. They had a problem there. So the Samaritan had less to lose. But again, that's not the point. Jesus points people back and said, who proved to be the better neighbor? And the answer is clearly the Samaritan. The Samaritan went way above and beyond what could have been reasonably asked. The two denarii that it says that he gave the innkeeper to care for the person, our best estimate is that is between one month and two months worth of rent and food. That's a lot. Like that's a lot more than here's a 20 and an Uber ride, see you later. Like that is a lot above and beyond. It says he gave him his donkey. That means he walked. He walked while this person rode on a donkey. He tended his wounds himself. You could make the point that the Samaritan had less to lose, but that isn't the point. That might be helpful, actually, just in this day and age as we argue with each other from across the room. What is the point? Let's just ask ourselves on that next time we're on social media. What's the point of this argument? I want to give uh, three really quick tips about being good neighbours. The first is this, if you, if you want to prove to be a good neighbor, cross the road. Actually cross the road. Get in and amongst people. Get into an uncomfortable situation because the first step into mission into Samaria is the willingness to engage. That's a heart decision and then you've got to get across there. And the second tip is this, get your hands dirty. Get involved with people's lives. When you get involved with real people, things get messy. You will get your hands dirty. The third tip is this, be willing to sacrifice. Does that mean money? Yes, but that's probably the least of your sacrifice. Does it mean time? Yes, but emotionally, to invest in a relationship with somebody, that's a big investment. That means you have to emotionally go all the way in and say, I care for you enough that if something happens to you, I hurt. That's the investment you'll be making when you're willing to sacrifice for the Samaritans, for those who are similar but different to you. And the final tip to go along with it is pray. Ask God to bring into your life, like I said before, people who are like Samaritans to you, people who are similar but a bit different, just similar enough but just different enough. They're the people you need in your life. They're the people we need in this church to keep us on our toes for the mission of God. I just want to share a story with you. And then we'll start finishing up. Uh, Jen and I have always prayed stupid prayers like, God, please bring uncomfortable people into our lives. God, please bring people into our lives that we're forced to be on mission to. And the problem with that is God hears our prayers and answers them. And so we spent a large part of our married life living next to a housing trust home, an Aboriginal housing trust home. Uh, and in it was this Anglo guy and his Aboriginal partner. And every now and then kids would be back and forth. Uh, it was a house which was known for some domestic violence and then because of the domestic violence, um, the Aboriginal lady used to frequently, when she was just fed up with her partner, just call up the cops, uh, claim domestic violence and send him off to jail again. Both of them not amazing human beings. 
frequently you got people uh, getting absolutely hammered over there all hours of the day and just screaming and yelling and cursing all through the night. So when you've got small children growing up and you're trying to help them walk in the way of Jesus or even just be nice citizens in general, not exactly what we have in mind, especially because it often happens at one, two in the morning. And so over the years, we built up relationships with these people and um, we found, honestly, it was the lady that gave us the most trouble. She was really difficult. When she was sober, she was lovely, but she wasn't sober very often. One night, she's up and she's screaming and she's cursing and, and it's about midnight and I was just fed up. I'm like, Jen, I'm going to go over. I'll have a chat to her. And, and Jen's like, yeah, all right. We're, we're kind of in that phase, like, do we call the cops and ask them to keep the peace or do we, as neighbours, go over and extend our peace? It's like, all right. Now, that sounds very nice when I say it that way, but really, that night, I was just like, I just want them to shut up so I can go back to sleep, yeah? I'm just being real with you guys here. I'm not trying to put on a show. So I wandered over in the fanciest trackies I had, and, like, really not particularly phased because I'd had this many engagements with this woman by this point. And I wandered over to ask her to be quiet. There she is. She's screaming at her son. I know her son as well. And so I wander over and I start talking to her. And then she screams and drops to the ground. And I turn around and her son's pulled out a knife on her. And all of a sudden, without any thought process or intent, I'm just standing there in the gap with my back to this woman, my hand on her shoulder, protecting her from her son looking to attack her. This person who has caused me grief, who is as close to an enemy as this middle-class white boy really gets. And I'm standing in between her and her attacker because that's what it means to prove to be a good neighbour. I didn't do that with any intent of heroism. It's just, just kind of happened, but it happened because I allowed myself to be in her life. It wouldn't have happened if I called the cops from afar. Now, I suspect nothing would have happened. There was a lot of empty threats happening in that house and everything was fine. He put his knife away and swore a bit and wandered off. But there was something in that moment, like even in that moment, I found myself thinking, how, how am I in this place? How am I here standing in the gap between this lady who's caused our family a lot of pain, a lot of frustration, and her son? And relationship is the answer. Who proved to be the better neighbour? Jesus challenges us deeply on compassion in these stories. And the parable of the three questions, he challenges us to ask the question, who is our neighbour? He challenges us to ask the question, who proved to be the good neighbour? But there's a third question, and classic Jesus, classic Jesus. The third question is the most obvious question. It's the one that stared you in the face the whole time. This is not like Bible college. I've had to unravel 10 layers to get to the question. It's your classic bait and switch. Because when you read a story like this, you get involved in the story. And for, if you're anything like me, you read it and you put yourself in the position of one of the people. And probably more than likely, you've realized that in this story, we're not meant to be the Samaritan. Okay, Maybe, maybe that is who you affiliate with, the person who shows compassion. That's all right. But we're not the Samaritan in the story. Maybe you're like me and you read this story and your instinct is that you're like, oh man, I need to think more about who I'm a good neighbor to. I'm like the priest. I am like the Levite. But we're not the priest and the Levite in this story. In this story, we're the traveler. 
we're the one who was left for dead on the side of the road. Because what might have crossed the lawyer's mind and what might have crossed your mind in all of this is as Jesus says back to the lawyer, this is a great answer. If you perfectly love God with everything in you and you perfectly love everyone in the world with everything in you, you'll have eternal life. What might cross your mind is this thought, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And in this story, you're not meant to envision yourself as the saving Samaritan come to do a great work. And you're not meant to envision yourself as the, as the Levi and the priest who went past, not because they were evil, but because they prioritized something else above compassion. No, in this story, you're meant to affiliate with the traveler, the person who's just been going through life in their day-to-day, has just been trying to get through and has found themselves beat up and ruined and left for dead on the side of the road without answers, without a sense of where to go forward from here. Jesus is the Samaritan in the story. Jesus is the one who crosses the road from heaven to earth to be physically present with us, the broken traveller. Jesus is the one that endures the ritual impurity. That is the one who was perfect, became imperfect for us. Taking on our sin, our brokenness and our shame and taking it to the cross to have the death that we could never die to inherit the life that we never deserve. Because the question, that third question is this, the very first question the lawyer asked, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And it's in that word inherit that you begin to catch it. You can't get it. You can't earn it. At the heart of the Christian faith is the message that you cannot earn this. You will never be good enough, brave enough, strong enough, compassionate enough to earn the love of God. It is inherited when you're in relationship with Him. And the only way to be in relationship to Him is to realize that you are the beaten up traveler on the side of the road, a sinner in need of a Savior. You cannot do it alone. The Samaritan Samaritan comes and saves the traveler. Jesus comes and saves you and me. It's at the very center of the gospel. We can't escape it. My friends, Jesus crossed the other side. He took our place and He restored us to full health with God. And the final question, the most important question, teacher, how do I receive eternal life is simply this. Recognize your need for a Saviour. Recognize your need for a Saviour. Encounter, you will only begin to truly walk with God when you recognize just how vast your need for a Saviour is. If you're wondering why you've been going through life and struggling to get it all done, it's because you need a saviour. If you've been wondering why your best laid plans keep breaking down, it's because you're trying to do them in your own strength. If you're wondering why you don't feel like you have any strength, that's because Jesus is calling you to rely on God's strength, not your own. You are more broken and sinful than you could possibly conceive, but you're actually more loved and accepted than you ever could dream possible that's the mystery and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ